Ah, good morning, everyone. So good to see y'all. You ready for the cold weather coming? Yes. Can't wait. I'm excited about it. Man, between services, I had to walk over to the youth building, and I was shocked. Temperature had dropped about 20 degrees already, it felt like. And so uh, I'm pretty amped up this morning just because of that. So, But also amped up about the Word this morning. If you have a Bible with you and you like to follow along in, in your own, once you open it to Romans chapter 9, two weeks ago I told you that uh, I was talk about Israel at some point, considering everything that's going on and all the talk going on, but I wanted to just kind of wait and, and see how things kind of played out over there. Well, at some point has become today uh, and next week, because this, this is going to be in at least two parts. Um, the reason why I decided to go ahead and do it and, and not wait any longer is because I just keep on seeing things posted and hearing things that people are saying and Bible verses that are being quoted that, that just aren't true, uh, at least not in the sense that those verses meaning what they think they mean in regards to this issue. There is a lot of ignorance out there when it comes to, to Israel and what's going on right now, and I don't want any of you to be ignorant, and I feel a, a, a bit of responsibility as your pastor to correct any error that may be floating around about it. Now, when I say there's ignorance, remember, ignorant does not mean stupid, okay? Ignorance just means a lack of knowledge, but a lack of knowledge does not mean a lack of information. Many people have what they think is knowledge on this issue, but uh, it's really just a bunch of incorrect information. Knowledge is true and correct information. And a lot of the incorrect information has come from what many of us who have grown up in or been a part of uh, evangelical, fundamentalist churches, what we have been taught or heard for many years in those churches, myself included. And so if, if what you believe about Israel is just based on everything that you've just kind of heard Growing up in church, don't be surprised if you hear me say something different over the next two weeks. And if you do, don't get mad and throw something at me. Up here on the stage, I have the uphill advantage, and I'll throw it right back at you, okay? <laughs> no, seriously, I really need to establish something right from the start here. This is one of those issues that people tend to really get riled up about when they shouldn't. This is not an issue that if, if people have different views of should cause us to break fellowship in any way whatsoever. I mean, if you decide to never come back to this church again because of something you heard me say about Israel that you don't agree with, then I'm telling you right now, you have picked the wrong hill to die on. There are hills that we should be willing to die on, but this ain't one of them. Why do I say that? Because no matter what your view of Israel is, it has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on your salvation, on your eternal security. I mean, nobody's going to hell because they believe wrong about this, and nobody's going to heaven because they believe right about it. There are issues that that does apply, but this is not it. There are doctrinal issues, things in the Bible, that we need to hold with a very closed hand. 
Issues like salvation being through faith alone in Christ alone, the Trinity, the virgin birth, the authority of Scripture. Believing wrong about those things do have eternal consequences, but not this one. This is one of those issues that we should hold with an open hand, not a closed one, meaning that we can see, see it from different perspectives and still walk in unity, love, and grace with one another. Okay? We're all on the same page about that. All right. Uh, if you do hear something different than what you have been taught or heard before, it's what I'm going to be presenting here is, is not anything new at all. It may be new to you, but I'm telling you, this is not some uh, popular theory that has just come up within the last few years or anything like that. It is not new in, in light of church history. In fact, it's the very same view that the early church had that we have gotten away from over the last hundred years or so. You know, I've pointed out several times now that, that I believe that right now that we are, are, are kind of in the midst of a uh, another, um, uh, not, rest, what is the word I'm trying to say? Not uh, revival, but reformation. Another reformation that God is leading much of his church right now back to a rediscovery, a recovery of the simplicity and purity of the gospel. And I'm so glad that he has allowed this church to be a part of that but you know, once you, once you see the true gospel for what it is, removed of all the impurities that have been added to it over the years and have rendered it powerless, things like legalism and religion and transactionalism and, and prosperity and American nationalism, so on and so on, when those things are removed and you see it for what it really is, you begin to see and understand other things in the Bible more clearly as well. And it's like having a dirty window for 20 years that you suddenly had cleaned or the tent taken off and you're, you're seeing things more clearly than you did before. I had someone come up to me after the first service this morning and he said, have you ever seen these videos of these little babies who have terrible eyesight and they put on these glasses and all of a sudden they're seeing things that they never did before? He said, that's what seeing the gospel for what it is is really like. You begin seeing other things that you're like, wow, I had no idea. Because there's a phrase that people often say when the light comes on like that. They say, well, this changes everything. And it does. When you see the gospel in its simplest form and the purity, simplicity of it and, and the really truth behind it, without all that other stuff, you're moved, you're like, wow, man, this changes everything. And so I think that applies to what we're going to be looking at the next two weeks as well. Today, I'm just going to kind of lay the foundation, and then we'll build on what we lay today next week. Our main text for both messages is going to be from Romans 9, but I am going to be uh, reading a whole lot of other verses as well, because I believe this is an issue that we need to look at with the whole council of Scripture, rather than just a, a few verses here and there, because this is a thing that many people right now are just plucking one or two verses out of context and saying, this is what that means when it doesn't. 
And so we're going to look at it all over the Bible. And so if you do like follow along in your own Bible, I would suggest you not try to keep up with me because I'm going to be moving too fast. And so I would suggest you just write the address down and then you can go back and, and read it yourself later. But they will be up on the screen. All right, let's go. Y'all ready? Uh, Romans 9. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we receive the word of the Lord this morning. Paul is writing in verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I just come to you right now and, and just confess, Lord, uh, gladly that I need you. Um, Lord, we're, we're, we're looking in your word again, and that is a, a weighty, heavy thing, and I want to handle this rightly in a way that honors you. And so I pray that you would guide us in the truth that we are looking at, that you would open our eyes to see it and give us humble hearts willing to receive whatever it is that you're showing us. And Lord, that we would leave here more in awe and more in love with you than we are even right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What Paul says here at the beginning of Romans 9, he's really picking up again on something that he started, a point he started to make back in chapter 2, but then he kind of got off and for the next six chapters just was explaining uh, how we are justified through faith before getting back to his original point here in the verses that we just read. So, Let's go back to chapter 2 and look at that original point that he was making that, that this is a, a completion of. Romans 2, starting in verse 17, he says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So Paul is pointing out here how the Jews back then had their identity completely tied to the law, the, the law of Moses that God gave through Moses, which was the Ten Commandments and all 613 laws that, that came with that that existed under the Old Covenant. The law was God's standard 
for being right with him and being able to be accepted by him. The Jewish people were considered God's chosen people because they were the ones that he chose to give his standard to. But the reason that why God gave it in the first place was to show them how impossible it was for them to keep it. He did it to show that they don't have an obedience problem, they have a heart problem. And there's nothing that they could do to fix that. And so Paul is pointing that out here and saying, you teach people to obey the law, but you can't even obey it yourself. And so he's saying, if your identity is in something that you broke, well, then your whole identity itself is broken. By breaking the law, you disqualify yourself as the people of God because you failed to meet the standard. And then in the next verses, he's going to talk about circumcision, which was the outward physical mark that identified them as God's people. For every Jewish male to be circumcised was, was basically the same purpose for what we do here in Texas when we brand cattle. What is the purpose of a brand? It identifies who those cattle belong to. Well, that's exactly what circumcision was because there was no other group or race of people on earth who were doing that. It was just them. And it was a physical representation of the covenant that God made with them. So let's look what Paul says about that. Verse 25, for indeed circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So the mark that says that you belong to God is not that anymore because you failed to meet the standard. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he, okay, I'm going to stop right there for a second because there's something important, important that Paul's about to say that, that uh, I want to speak about. But here Paul is saying, if you break the law, that mark that identifies you as God's people means nothing. But if you keep the law, if you're able to meet that standard, then you'll belong to God whether you have that physical mark or not. And then I stop there because verse 28 and 29 is the clincher, and it's one of the main reasons why the Jews wanted Paul dead. Look what he says, verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So he's saying it is not your physical makeup, it is not your heritage, your geography, your race that makes you God's chosen people. That is not what makes anyone a true Jew from God's perspective. From his perspective, it's about what's going on in the condition of your heart on the inside, not what you look like on the outside. So how does one become a Jew inwardly? Well, that's what Paul spends the next six chapters explaining. 
how that only happens through faith alone and Christ alone. And so you could sum up everything that Paul is saying, the main point he is making between Romans 2 and Romans 9 with this one statement that is included there at the top of the notes if you like to follow along there. And that is this, one becomes a true Jew through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the big point that Paul was making. And so what that means then is that everyone who thought they were God's chosen people just because they had the law or they had circumcision or because of their heritage, if they reject Christ, they're disqualified. They are not God's chosen people. And so that's why Paul writes what he does there in chapter 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now that phrase, according to the flesh, is important. We're going to be seeing it a couple times as we go through this thing in the next couple weeks. His kinsmen according to the flesh means his kinsmen naturally. The, the natural Israelites, the natural Jews, physical as opposed to his spiritual kinsmen, which would be all those who have received Jesus by faith. He has great sorrow for his natural kinsmen because they have rejected Christ. He has great sorrow for them because since they have rejected Christ, God has rejected them. Why? Well, Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father, but through me. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we deny him, he also will deny us. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 4 again. Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. So we're going to look closer at these specific things that Paul says belong to the natural Israelites. Now, in order to better understand uh, the point that Paul is making, to, 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 to correctly uh, be able to view Israel and how they fit even into uh, the world today and, and what's going on, it is very important to be able to see the Bible as one big story that God has written, which I've been teaching for several years now, rather than just a collection of individual stories that stand alone by themselves. No, each individual story makes up one big story that God has written. And if you get right down to it, God's story is all about a father and son. It begins with Adam, whom the Bible calls the son of God in Luke 3:38. And when he and Eve sinned, God removed them from the Garden of Eden and he explained to them the consequences that were now going to come to all of mankind because of their sin. But he also gave a very hopeful uh, prophetic word when he said that the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. That seed that he was referring to was Jesus who would eventually, generations later, come from her. And he would crush the head of the serpent when he died on the cross. 
And then when he stepped out of the grave, he gave it one of those on his way out. That promise of what God said there to Eve was fulfilled at the cross and the grave. So that tells us then that right from the beginning of the story, that sending his son to redeem mankind was always a part of the plan. That was always a part of the plan. That wasn't something that God just had to uh, come up with real quick because we screwed up so bad. No, he had always had that as the plan. The climax, of course, of the story is the death and resurrection of Jesus. But leading up to that climax between the fall of Adam and the coming of Jesus that the Bible calls the second Adam, God was giving hints along the way at what he was going to do. The Bible calls those hints types or shadows theologians call it progressive revelation god was progressively revealing the plan as the story went on for example almost every major story in the old testament centers around what a father and son you see the the lineage that the the story moves through there next in your notes it was the story of abraham and his son isaac that god promised him. He also had another son, Ishmael, who was the son of the flesh and not a son of the promise. And that's who the Arab people come from Ishmael. But Isaac continued the line. And and from Isaac, you have Jacob, Jacob and Esau. He had those twin boys. Jacob stole the blessings of the father. And so the, the line would carry on through him. And at one point, Jacob actually wrestles with God, and God changes his name. You know what he changed it to? Israel. And so for a period of time, Israel was one man. Now hold on to that thought, because that's going to be important for where we're going to go next week. We're going to come back to it. Israel had 12 sons, who eventually became the heads of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel but not before they were all held in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. But while they were there as slaves in Egypt, God sent them a savior in the person of Moses who led them out of the bondage of slavery and into the physical land that God had given them to settle in. Moses was another hint, a type, a shadow, a representation of Jesus who was the ultimate let my people go savior who led his people out of the bondage of sin and into the promised land of salvation and shared life with him. And as we move through the story, once they settled in that land that God had promised them, the, the people are, are, are governed by judges who are shadows of Jesus as the ultimate judge who would judge both the living and the dead. And then there was a time period where they were ruled by kings who were shadows of Jesus as the king of all kings. And then came the prophets. And they were telling of something that God was going to do that was so big it would absolutely change everything. And that something was Jesus Coming into the world, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so in light of all that, of all those types and shadows and the way the story was progressively moving along, let's look at each of these things in Romans 9-4, these things that Paul says belong to natural Israelites. The first one, the adoption of sons. 
the story of Israel as a nation is even the story of a son. Because when, when that's what God called them when he told Moses to go to Pharaoh to, to let the people go. In Exodus 4.22, it says, Then you will tell Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Let them go. He's talking about the people collectively he called his son. So hang on to that one too. So right now you've got two things that are going to be key next week. For a period of time, Israel was one man. And then there was another time where God called the nation of Israel his son. And then the next one, Paul says, to whom belong the glory. God's glory. We talked two weeks ago about his glory is his holiness on display, revealing his character and his nature. Several times we see it throughout the Old Testament as the people were moving from Egypt into the promised land. It says several times that God's glory filled the tent of meeting. And then it appeared again in a very dramatic and powerful way on top of the mountain in thunder and lightning and an earthquake. In 1 Samuel, the glory of God was with Israel whenever they had the Ark of the Covenant. But when it was taken, it says that the glory departed. And then in 2 Chronicles, Solomon builds uh, uh, the temple as a permanent structure. And when they finished construction of it, they dedicated it to God. And it says the glory of God filled the temple like smoke. And fire from heaven fell and consumed the sacrifices on the altar. So that's the glory that Paul is referring to. Next he says the covenants. You have the covenant that God made with Abraham. When he made Abraham go to sleep so that God would be the one to fulfill both requirements of it, both sides of the covenant as he walked through the, 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 the animal carcasses that had been cut in two. That was the covenant that God made with Moses through the giving of the law. The Old Testament part of God's story is filled with covenant imagery which always included the shedding of blood which was also a hint, a foreshadow of what was to come. And then Paul says the giving of the law. We know what that is. We already talked about that. Then it's the temple service. What is that? Well, many of you know that in the Old Testament, the manifest, the tangible presence of God resided on earth in one place, the innermost room of the temple called the Holy of Holies. Not everybody could go in there. It could be in God's presence like that. It was only the high priest. And he could only do that one particular day out of the year. And when that day came, he had to spend a long time following these rules and rituals and cleansing to a T. And if any of that was done wrong, if anybody else went in there, or if he went in there on a different day, or if he missed one little step in, in all those rituals to prepare himself to go in there, death immediately they would fall down dead that was just illustrating the the absolute holiness of God and what was required in order to come into his presence and then finally we have the promises what promises all the promises that God made in the old testament you have some of the major ones like the promise he made to Abraham that he would be the father of a of a great nation and 
through him. In him, all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He promised, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And then you have all the promises that God made to Israel through each of the prophets. And so all of that is what Paul is referring to in those things that he say, says belongs to natural Israel. So what is significant about those six things? Well, you can write this underneath that list there. They are all shadows. Every one of those things are shadows, which means they represented and were pointing to something more, something better. That it wasn't just about those individual things, but it was about the more and the better thing that those things were pointing to. So, let's talk about shadows for just a minute so you can get a better understanding of their purpose in the Old Testament. If you, you can't see it, I'm sure, but right now, this light is casting a pretty good shadow on the floor and if you could see it there's some things about me that you could tell just by looking at that shadow if you didn't see me but all you saw was the shadow you'd be able to tell that that's probably a shadow of a man um, you could get a, a general sense of of my build or you know shape you could definitely tell that I don't have any hair on my head You'd probably tell whether I was wearing long sleeves or long pants or, or whatever, but that's about it. There's a lot of other detail about me that you can't see just by looking at a shadow. Here's a good illustration. Put that first picture up there. Here's a picture of a shadow, and this shadow's even got some context, right? We see that this is a shadow that looks like it's in a laundry room. And so based on that context, we can probably... Uh, figure out that mm, that looks like a ponytail hanging behind her head so I think that's a woman so I'm gonna say okay that's a shadow of a woman and because of the context that it's in a laundry room it may make it even more likely that it's a woman and what kind of condition is that woman in pregnant right so that's what that shadow is telling us but then when we look at the substance that is casting that shadow she's not pregnant at all She's just carrying a bundle of laundry. And so if all we did was focus on the shadow and think it was all about the shadow, not only would we miss the substance, but we would misname, we would misunderstand the substance and what it was all about. And that was the purpose of all these shadows in the Old Testament. They worked the same way. Now watch this. We're going to go through this list again, but this time I'm going to show you how Jesus is the substance. He is the fulfillment of every one of these shadows. So the first one again, the adoption of sons, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, that means the purpose of of history, what history had always been about and leading up to when that time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive what? The adoption as sons. Being an adopted son of the Father only happens through faith in Jesus. And then the glory. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, 
Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All those times in the Old Testament where God revealed his glory in these dramatic and loud and frightening and scary ways, as big and powerful as those were, they were just small glimpses and impartial representations. They were just shadows of the glory that is fully seen through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. God's glory is seen in its fullest through Jesus. As powerful as those other ones were in the Old Testament, they were just small glimpses pointing to him. And then the covenants. Hebrews 8, 7 says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And then in that chapter there, after that verse, the writer of Hebrews quotes a long text in Jeremiah 31 where God is announcing prophetically that he is going to make a new covenant. And then in verse 13, he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And so Paul is saying there that 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 what did belong to Israel, natural Israel, is ready to now disappear. Why? Because Jesus has made a new and better covenant. The giving of the law. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That means that what everybody thought they were gaining by obeying the law, it can only be gained in Jesus. For him to fulfill the law means that he is the only one who is able to meet that standard. He's the only one that was able to keep the law completely and perfectly. Luke 24, 44. Now Jesus said to them, these are my words which I have spoken to you while I was with you that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. Everything written in the law was pointing to Jesus. And then the temple service. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And then down to verse 11, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. I love the book of Hebrews because the whole thing is pointing out all the shadows of the Old Testament and how they were all pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus. And then the promises. And I love this one. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now watch this. In order that... In Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham, all the promises that God made to him might come to who? 
the Gentiles, that's you and me, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Man, all those promises that God made to Abraham, they are realized and received in Jesus for all those who are in him. And then 2 Corinthians 1.20, for as many as are the promises of God, and there's a lot of them, Every one of them that are in the Old Testament, in him, talking about Jesus, in him, all of those promises are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. All the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled, realized, and received solely for those who are in Christ. Now you'll notice verse 5 there, Paul actually adds two other things to this list. He also says, whose are the fathers? That's the fathers of their religion. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. They were in and part of God's big story. And each and every one of them were looking ahead and pointing to Jesus. And we'll see that closer next week. And then Paul says, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? There's that phrase again, according to the flesh. That means Jesus is not theirs salvifically, as in salvation. He's not theirs spiritually. He belongs to them physically, naturally, according to the flesh. That means that he was born physically through them. He was a physical Jew. So, in this whole text, Paul is writing in these five verses, this is what Paul is doing. He's going, come on, y'all. You had it. You had the shadows. You were the only ones that God gave those shadows to. They were all pointing to Jesus. Not only did you have the shadows, but you had the very substance that was casting those shadows born into your natural lineage. But you missed him. You missed him. You rejected him. And because of that, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So all of that brings us to the big question. What does that mean today? And how are we to view natural, ethnic, political Israel today? And consequently, based on all this, how should we view the events that are going on over there right now? That's what we're going to talk about next week. <laughs> so you want to find out come back next week I mean this is longer than I usually take anyway but that does not mean there is not a takeaway for us today oh you better bet there is a takeaway because that right there is the gospel y'all and that is such great news for those who are in Christ because I mean man if you're in him Jesus has met God's standard on your behalf. 
He's done it for you. That means he has put an end to you ever thinking, I'm not good enough. I, I, I'll never meet the standard. I'll never make it. I'm always less than. I just can't do it. No, Jesus has become good enough for you. He has met the standard for you, and he has given you that same distinction from his grace and mercy. Not only has he met the standard for you, but he has also included you in a new covenant that he has made with the Father. You see, that's one thing about the new covenant. It's not made between us and God, because if it was, then there would be a requirement for us to keep our end of the bargain. But it's not. It's between the Father and the Son, which means it can never be broken. There's no chance of it. And when you're in Jesus, you are included to be a part in the recipients of that that new covenant when Jesus died on the cross it says that thick veil of the temple that the high priest only could go into was ripped from top to bottom signifying that everyone now had access to Jesus and not just a, 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 a chosen few they had access to the very direct presence of God and it means that if you are in Christ all the promises that we read about that God made in the Old Testament and everywhere else, they belong to you. Jesus has secured those promises through his death and resurrection. Is that good news or what? Amen. I'm telling you, the ramifications of what he did has ripple effects that affect everything. He literally changed everything. And next week, we'll see what all this means for today. So let's pray. God, thank you. Oh, thank you that Jesus was always the plan. Lord, open our eyes to the substance. Lord, I think we do just spend so much time and get so focused on the shadows. And even today, God, at times we can miss you miss Jesus and I pray that we won't do that and Lord I just thank you that in this that we're looking at is just such good news for those who are in Christ and so Lord I pray that through this you would not only give us a greater appreciation and a love for you knowing what it means that you have chosen us to be the recipients of all this but God at the same time you break our hearts for those who are outside of this looking in that you break our hearts to those who have missed it, to those who have rejected you. And Lord, just light a fire of a sense of urgency inside of us to go and, and tell others this good news. So once again, Holy Spirit, take all this and make it become real and alive in us. Lord, that people will look at us and know that we belong to you, not because of some physical mark on us, but because of our joy and our peace, the countenance on our face, the way we bless and love one another. Lord, that those are the marks of those who belong to you. And so, Lord, let the world see those marks in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When you hear good news like that, you're only response can be thank you i worship you i praise you and so that's what we're going to spend our last few moments together today doing we're just going to worship the lord 
Jesus for revealing himself to us who seem for who he is and understand it. And it is also a time of ministry. And I know there are some of you who came in here with some heavy weights and burdens and hurts, things that are going on, and you would really like somebody to pray with you. If that's the case, then some of the leaders of our church and their spousals will be down here on the front rows. They'd love to be able to pray with you. The Lord is here. He's wanting to do something in all of us, whether it's heal a heart, open our eyes, change our thinking. Change takes place in the presence of God. And so we just submit ourselves to him and say, God, change me in whatever way that you need to, that gives you the most glory. Let's all stand and do that together.